also really bummed uh, that Doug isn't here, because I love Doug as well. So Doug's not able to make it tonight because Doug is back in Texas um, on a pastor's retreat, um, our young adult pastor, Doug. So um, I love Texas because I'm from Texas. And yeah, yeah, there we go. And some Texans in the room. So I grew up um, in a small town uh, called Alvin, which is a little south of Houston. So I went to Alvin High School. So my junior year of high school, I was um, off in the spring, as a lot of juniors in high school do, um, off doing college visits. Anybody do any college visits? And that's how you, yeah, a few of us. So I was out doing a college visit, and I went to um, this small school um, up in Waxahachie in the Dallas area, which is about five hours away. Um, from where I'm from, to visit a school. And my mom was actually a graduate of that school, so she went with me. Uh, so we had a great time visiting, and, you know, like it's like parents' weekend when they're serving the good food, you know what I mean? So, so we went and had the good food there, and then we're, we're driving back, and uh, we're on I-45 south from Waxahachie to Alvin. It's about a five-hour drive. And about three hours in, it starts raining, like like the floodgates of heaven opened and it's raining, or as Floridians call, Tuesday. <laughs> but I'm from Texas, and I haven't lived in Florida yet. So this is like unprecedented, just like flood-like, flood-like rain, and it's raining really hard, and I'm driving, so my, my mom um, tells me, hey, Isaac, just, just be careful, just slow down, it's raining really hard. And I responded, Mom, I got this, like, we're good. Whereas she, understandably, was a little concerned because that's also how every hospital visit starts, right? I got this, I'm good, until, until you're not. So, so she's like, hey, okay, okay. So then a few minutes later, like, it's raining even harder. The visibility is less. Um, she's like, hey, Isaac, just slow down, be careful. And I'm like, mom, I got this, we're good. She's like, okay. And she's still just kind of feel, feeling anxious, understandably, because there's a 17-year-old teenage boy, like behind a wheel, like I would too, feel a little uh, anxious. So a few minutes later, you know, we're driving and the rain is coming down even harder. Visibility is almost non-existent. And she's like, hey, Isaac, just slow down, be careful. And I responded, okay, you want me to be careful? I will be careful. So I pull over into the right lane and I start driving 15 miles an hour for the next three hours. It stopped raining after 20 minutes. So we're there. You guys got that? So uh, it's, uh, I'm driving very slow for a long period of time. And just the hostility is mounting because I was just trying to prove a point. I was like, Mom, like, you're, you're telling me to be careful. I know I can be careful, but you want me to be, you want me to drive carefully, so I will drive carefully. And I was just like so stubborn, just driving carefully. And you can just feel the hostility mounting at this point. Neither of us are talking to each other. Just, I'm upset. She's upset because I'm upset. I'm upset because she's upset that I'm upset. It's just not a great situation, right? So in all of you, have been in a situation similar, maybe not in a car with Mama Trevino, but you've been in a situation where there is just hostility, right? And think about it from her perspective. She didn't cause the hostility. She didn't start the hostility, but now she's in it, right? And all of us have been in those moments to where we may not have started it, or maybe we did, but we're in it, and now we don't know what to do. For me, I was too far in. I was not. I was not letting up, Right? In moments of hostility, what do we do? What do we do whenever there's tension, right? In the midst of hostility, 
there's like this giant wall that's getting built between us, right? This dividing wall of hostility. What do we do when there's hostility? Because all of us want the same thing. We all want peace. And maybe we know that, and maybe we don't, but ultimately, the answer to hostility is peace. So the question now is, okay, well, how do we get peace? How do we get peace, right? So, and we, there's hostility with family members, right? Maybe you have some hostility there. Maybe you have hostility with, with friends or former friends because there was so much dividing wall of hostility. Or maybe roommates, former roommates, maybe roommates you have now, which may be awkward. Don't start elbowing people if you're sitting next to your roommate, right? So these walls of hostility, they, they exist and we're in them. And they don't always happen just with us and another person, right? Sometimes we're just an observer, but we still feel the tension, right? Maybe we see just a parent who's just berating a child and just going after them so undeservedly, right? And we're just witnessing that and we just feel for that child, right? Or maybe we see governments that are just oppressing their people, right? And we hear about it on the news or maybe we go to other countries and we witness it and we just feel the tension. Or maybe we see or have experienced, you know, men abusing women or people getting sold into sex trafficking and slavery, we just feel the hostility, and we're in it, and we don't know what to do, and we don't know where to go, and we don't know how to navigate. So the question is, how do we get peace? How do we get peace in the midst of hostility? So go ahead and turn to your neighbor and tell him, peace be with you. And turn to your other neighbor and tell him, and also with you. <laughs> Hey, so we are in a study in Ephesians, and Paul is going to do such, uh, be so helpful in us understanding how do we get peace when there is dividing walls of hostility. So we're going to read here in Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians 2, verse 11 through 18, where it says this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility." By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. Let's pray. God, thank you that we can read your word. God, we're praying that, God, if you can just um, send your spirit to help us understand what you might be saying. God, be with me and be with all of our hearts, God, as we're understanding what you want to teach us this morning about, with your text about peace. So we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we, right now, we want to observe what this text is saying. So let's look. It starts out by saying, therefore. And anytime you see a therefore, you have to ask, what's the therefore? Therefore, right? 
So what's it there for? So, it's, so typically that means that we're going to look previously to what he was saying. So to recap what Doug did a great job last week talking about, Doug talked about the biggest but in the Bible, right? And that it said that we were dead in our trespasses, that we were sinners, right? That we were unable of making ourselves become alive. We are dead, but we serve a but God, but God. But God came in because God is rich in mercy and God gave us lavishest love on us, right? And then we were dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved, right? So we were dead, but God made us alive. And he's saying that, remember, he's saying, therefore, remember. So he's saying, remember that there used to be a dividing wall of hostility, between you and Jesus. There was ginormous wall, and Jesus came in, right? Because we had no hope. We were living in hostility. We were living without peace. But Jesus is our peace, as it says in verse 13. And Jesus preaches peace. There's one of the prophets, Isaiah, he refers to Jesus as the prince of peace. And that means that Jesus forgave us that Jesus brought us near to him, and that Jesus broke down the walls of hostility. Jesus came in and kicked the walls of hostility down. Why? Why would Jesus do that? Because, let's read in verse 14 and 16. This is, this is awesome. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. In verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So why? Why does Jesus break down the walls of hostility? Reconciliation. Reconciliation. It's there in your handout. Here's the definition. To change from hostility to harmony. Reconciliation. To change from hostility to harmony. Because Jesus wants us to be reconciled to God. This hostile relationship that we used to have with God when we were dead in our sin. Jesus came in, broke down the wall of hostility, reconciled us. So now we are, have a harmonious relationship with God the Father. And it doesn't stop there, this uh, hostile relationship that we have with each other. Jesus came in, broke down the wall of hostility, so now we are no longer in hostile relationships with one another. Now we can be in harmonious relationships with one another. So the ultimate goal here is reconciliation. We go from a hostile relationship to a harmonious or reconciled relationship. So it's only made possible because of Jesus. Like, listen, this is, this is super, super important. It is im, in, im, impos, impos, why can I not say that word? Impossible? Impossible? Man, oh, okay, here we go. It is impossible to have a harmonious, reconciled relationship with God and with others without Jesus. It's impossible, right? We are incapable without Jesus. Like, we cannot be reconciled to the Father. It's not possible without Jesus. 
We cannot be reconciled with ourselves. You know that, that fear that we have and that anxiety that we have and that inner critic that just doesn't quiet, right? This like inner turmoil that we experience. Without Jesus, it is impossible to have a reconciled relationship with ourselves, right? And each other, like uh, if Eminem and Machine Gun Kelly had a more reconciled relationship, they wouldn't be throwing out diss tracks, but here we are. So with Jesus, we are able to have a reconciled relationship with one another or with creation, right? To be good stewards of the things that God has given us and the things around us. It is impossible to be reconciled without Jesus. And here's the thing, too. It's not just with ourselves. We are incapable of helping others without Jesus, right? So these things that we see that are, that's happening in the world and this injustice that's happening— Without Jesus, we have no hope. With we and ourselves and our own goodwill want to go out and try to create peace in the world and try to create justice in the world and give hope to people. Without Jesus, it's impossible. We are powerless, powerless to be peacemakers without Jesus. So what do I mean by that? I mean, here, here's what happens whenever we try to change things without Jesus. Like a lot of us Man, a lot of us come from really messed up family life. And that's a lot of the reason why a lot of us are here in Orlando. Is we just have really hard family lives. Without Jesus, it's impossible to have a reconciled relationship with family members. Right? We see um, a lot of these, these hashtag movements that are going around. Right? That, um, you know, they're going around and we participate in them. We even, may even start them or we see them. Right? It's great for raising awareness and it's great for getting people talking. But what happens? Months later, a year later, people stop talking or people forget, right? And then there has to be like another hashtag movement to remind us of the previous one or another viral video to remind us what's going on. Or, um, you know, a lot of us, we, a lot of us look, to, we look to politics, right? Well, like, well, government can solve it. Um, so we, we look to our government, which, yes, God can use um, government to enact peace and prosperity in a city. But... Ultimately, that's not where our hope is, right? So we can, you know, parties can agree with one another and kind of create some policies together. That is true. But ultimately, our peace is not in Congress. And our peace is not in senators. It's not in a president. Our hope is in a king, right? Our hope is in King Jesus. So here's what happens. Super cool. Here's what happens when we put our hope in King Jesus. So about 2,000 years ago, in roughly 30 A.D., uh, Jesus dies, right? So he lived for 33 years, then he dies. He was then resurrected and then hung around for a little while and then ascended into heaven. And 50 days after Jesus ascended into heaven, there was about 120 uh, Jesus followers, right? So Jesus said that he was going to send his spirit, so he did. So they went, the, these Jesus followers went from 120 to 5,000, sorry, to 3,000 immediately. And then we read in the book of Acts just a little while later, and then another 5,000 get added. And then we read a little bit later that there was this dude that used to be opposed to this Jesus movement that's happening, Saul of Tarsus. He was leading the effort to persecute Christians. But then what does God do? There's another but God moment. But God came in. He knocked Saul off of his horse, right? He blinds him. He converts him. So now Saul is following Jesus. So Saul starts going by his Roman name, 
Paul, and not, he, now he's not persecuting the Christ followers. He's leading this Jesus movement to create communities around their area of Christ followers. Then, around that time, there was a great fire in Rome. And this is important because the Roman Empire is like the leading government right now. As these new Christ-following communities are popping up, the Roman Empire has power over the entire area. And in 64 AD, um, there was this great fire of Rome, or as the historians call it, the great fire of Rome. So the, the guy that's in charge of the Roman Empire uh, his name is Emperor Nero, right? Emperor Nero. So em- Emperor Nero's in charge, and people start blaming Emperor Nero for this great fire of Rome. So what does Nero do? Nero doesn't want the blame. So he assigns blame to these Christ followers, these Christians, and he starts using that as an excuse to persecute Christians, right? Because Nero doesn't like the Christians, because this Jesus movement is undermining his authority and the Roman Empire, So Nero's there, not only is he blaming Christians for the fire, but he's using that as an excuse to persecute these Christians, right? And in their persecution, he's burning them alive. He's throwing these Christians, these Christ followers, to wild animals, and he's making them fight in arenas for sport against wild animals. A few years years ago, I got to go to Rome, and I got to see um, the Colosseum, which is super cool. And although the Christians didn't fight there, they fought in really arena-type atmospheres very similar to that there because Emperor Nero wanted to do everything in his power to stop the Jesus movement. But does it stop? No. Because not only were people, although Emperor Nero uh, was trying to uh, physically kill these people physically, uh, society at large was trying to kill them socially, right? So to be a Christian at this time was to be a social outcast, right? So the Christians were getting blamed for everything bad that was happening in the Roman Empire at this time. So because of this persecution, both physically and because of the persecution socially, these early Christians were forced to go underground uh, to these things called catacombs. And the catacombs were like long, dark galleries that were under and a little outside the city of Rome. And as these Christ followers are under intense persecution, as they're meeting underground in these catacombs, They're still following Jesus. They're still worshiping Jesus. They're still having their gatherings. Uh, They're still baptizing. They're even, they're doing their burials there um, underground. As a result of the persecution, like a lot of the Christians then ended up being scattered because Rome wasn't safe anymore. So they ended up being scattered all over the Roman Empire. And eventually, as we can testify right now in this room today, all over the world. We would not be here at the table worshiping Jesus if it, not, if it wasn't for uh, God working through these early Christians in the midst of persecution. To statistically, statistically, we should not be here right now. Christianity should not be a thing. It is like all, next to zero if you calculate the probability of us being here in this room and Christianity, you know, it's over 2 billion people proclaiming to be a Christian. Statistically, that would, it's not possible unless the most powerful source of peace was in the middle. And it was. Jesus, this, us being Christians and this Jesus movement happening was only made possible because of the source of the power, the source of peace. 
in Jesus Christ himself because that is what happens when you have Jesus at the center. Now we have arguably, I mean, not arguably, we have the most powerful movement, the largest movement of all time. And it's not even because of us. It's Jesus making his name renowned in our community and around the world because that's who Jesus is. I'll tell you another story. Um, so back in, uh, when I was in college, um, I was in a college ministry, and uh, we partnered with this super cool organization called um, Living Water International. And you may or may not be familiar with them, but they do really, really cool work in helping take uh, clean water all over the world. Um, so they, what they do is they go and they drill wells to get water from the ground up to give water to communities of people um, that don't have it. So me and a team of people were fortunate and fortunate enough to be able to go on one of these trips uh, with Living Water. So we went to Honduras, and it was awesome. So you know those trips that you go on? I don't know if you guys have ever been on a trip like that, to where you, you don't feel like you're needed, and the reason you don't feel like you're needed is because you're not needed, because they can completely do it, and like you're just kind of lucky to be there? That was us. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure by us helping dig the well, like we were delaying them like on how quickly they could dig their own well. But I was still just so fortunate that they allowed me to be there so I could see the work that God was doing. And uh, so Living Water is an amazing organization, not just because they want to give water to people, but they also want to give spiritual water. And they want to help people, not with their bodies, but with their souls. So Living Water does such a great job of bringing peace and helping people. So we dug a well, we dug a well at a school, and now like these kids and these teachers don't have to walk a mile anymore to get dirty water out of the river, now they can get clean water straight from the well um, that we were able to help dig, which is awesome. So that's what happens when you have Jesus at the center to be a peacemaker. I'll tell you another story. Um, so I got to, um, before I came here, I was involved in a church, and uh, we were helping sponsor this, uh, this guy, this pastor in the Philippines. And so uh, a few years, a few years ago, I got to go, and there was a team of us that went to go hang out with him there in the Philippines, and it was awesome. They were a church that was planting churches that was planting churches, so it was so cool. So they would go out, and before their gathering, their gathering on Sunday morning, they would go out and they would like evangelize and go talk to all their neighbors and invite them to church, and then their neighbors would come. It's crazy, right? That's how simple that is. So, but they, they, they were doing that. And so that's how they were growing, and God was blessing them, and God was, was bringing peace to the Philippines. Um, so we went, and one of the things that we did was we did a, um, a pastor's conference where we did some training with some of the pastors there. And while at the training, we also got to experience this um, just going out in the streets and talking to people about Jesus. So, so uh, with my group, there was me, and I was 25 at the time, and then there was like this 16-year-old girl, uh, this 15-year-old girl, and then there was this 13-year-old boy. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm in another country. Um, it may or may not be unsafe. Like, where's the man in our group? And then I realized it was me. <laughs> so, and they, they, they were doing it in their, their native language of Tagalog, so I was really there, just the muscle, the, you know, everything that, which is not, okay, I'm moving on here. <laughs> 
So, so we were there, and it was super cool, like, going in the streets. And sure enough, the, the, the youngest of the group, the 13-year-old, he, he went in, and we went to this house. And he just goes. And then I'm honestly, like, being re- re- really honest right now, I was very pessimistic. I was like, there's no, there's no way. Like, I've done this in the States a lot. Like, there's absolutely no way. First house we go to, this kid talks to this woman. And at first, she's a little resistant. And I can't understand, I can't understand anything they're saying. So she's a little resistant. Uh, and then something happens, and she breaks. And I just see tears coming down her eyes, or coming down her face. So he, he prays with her, or, or I'm assuming they're praying, because like, their eyes were closed and their head were, heads were bowed. So. Um, so he prays with her, and then, and then he hands her something, and then we uh, go out and ask him, bro, like, what happened? He's like, yes, yeah, she accepted Jesus. Like, my mind was blown. I was like, what? Just, like, that, that happens? Like, that, that's amazing. So then the next person, we saw these group of ladies, and sure thing, dude, this dude had some gusto. So he went and just talked to this group of ladies about Jesus, and they get saved. And then he invites them to church. And my mind is blown, because that's what happens whenever Jesus is at the center of you trying to create peace. Right? So there was another story. There was um, a buddy of mine. uh, His name was Sean. And Sean grew up in Indiana, and Sean grew up um, as an atheist. So he just grew up very, very hostile towards God, just didn't think that, that God existed or was that a thing, you know, didn't really understand why Christians were, did what they did. Um, so he, while in college, um, he, inv- he went to church because a cute girl invited him to church, and that's what happens sometimes. Um, so he went, and he's there um, just kind of listening and not really thinking anything about it. So then he, he goes home, he goes back the next week, he's like, okay, whatever, goes home, goes back the next week, goes home, no, nothing's happened. Then, so something that Sean struggled with is he struggled with anger and rage, where he would just have these fits of rage, where he would just like outburst, and that's just something that he just thought, this is my life, and this is just going to happen to me. After he started going to church for a few weeks, in the in the midst of one of his like rage fits that he was about to have for the first time in his life, he said this, Jesus help me. And what happened? He said for the first time in his life, the rage just went away instantly. And he became a Christian and became like one of our best leaders um, where, where, I, where I came from. So that's what happens whenever we have peace. Can I share one more story? One more. So, uh, my, so um, my, my mom's dad, uh, my grandpa, he, uh, he was a very uh, uh, selfish uh, growing up for most of his life. So he, w- he was out just kind of like getting around with everybody, and uh, he was out just kind of drinking whatever, and just lived a very, very selfish life, just like very, very much about himself, like very far, very far from God, right? And then he was, it was late on a Saturday night. And he was walking, he's from Puerto Rico, and he was walking down the street in Puerto Rico, and he had a Saul of Tarsus-like experience where God struck him down on his knees, revealed himself to him, and he became a Christ follower. Super, super cool. So then he's so passionate about uh, now that he's now following Jesus and his life is radically changed and transformed and now reconciled to God that he starts just telling everybody about it. So he's telling like his friends and his family members and he's, people start gathering around him and he starts going to the streets to telling, telling people about Jesus and people just gather around him. 
And then he starts going to the parks and telling people about Jesus. And people just gather around him. And then he starts getting invited to, uh, to speak at churches. And people gather to hear him speak. And then larger churches. And eventually he is packing out soccer stadiums around North America to listen to him speak about Jesus. At one of these events where he's talking about Jesus was this woman who happens to be my dad's mom. And she got saved at one of these events where he's talking about Jesus. That's amazing. So Jesus saves people. Jesus brings peace to people's life. And I would not have had such an amazing model of two godly parents showing how to bring peace into this world if God had not worked in that way. So here's, I say all that to say, people with the peace of Jesus become peacemakers. And here's the big idea. Peacemakers are wall breakers. Peacemakers are wall breakers. To be a peacemaker means breaking down the walls of hostility with the, with the power of Jesus. With the power of Jesus, we are able to go in and break down any walls of hostility that people are putting up because peacemakers are wall breakers. So you may be sitting there asking, okay, how can I be a peacemaker? I'm glad you asked, because I actually have four really helpful truths um, to help us think through. How can we become a peacemaker and a wall breaker? So four truths. Truth number one, and it's there in your handout. Peacemakers are active. Peacemakers are active. Peacemaking doesn't happen by accident. Peacemaking is very active. Peacemaking takes a lot of intentionality. And when I say peacemakers are active, here's what I mean. Peacemaking uh, is not peace-faking. Peacemaking is not peace-faking. Because in the midst, when we have walls of hostility, here's what peace-fakers do. They'll say, uh, there's no wall, right? They'll, like, uh, they'll like quote like Star, uh, Star Wars and say, these are not the hostility walls you're looking for, right? They just like completely deny any hostility, right? And they just don't want to enter or step into conflict. And they just, peace fakers want to shy away from it and just hope that it just kind of goes away on its own, right? So here's the thing, too, about peace fakers, that some of us peace fakers, man, we're some of the most passive-aggressive people we've ever met, are we not? Right? And we'll, we'll say things like, uh, yeah, I'm not mad, when clearly, clearly we're mad, right? Or we'll say, it's fine, it's, it's, it's whatever, when it, it, is not, it is not fine. Or we'll say this too, we'll say, uh, I was only joking. Have you used that one before? So what that does is that allows you to basically say any hostile comment you want and then say, no, I was joking, we're cool, right? Because that's what, that's what peace faking is, right? And here's the thing, too, about peace fakers, is that we almost, like, enjoy whenever we see other people get really, really riled up, but then we remain calm. So we'll, like, get a very long stick, and then we'll start poking the bear from a very long distance away, and then ask, why are you getting upset? Right? That's what, that's what we do as peace fakers. Because... Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever had uh, passive-aggressive roommates. Like, I know I, know I have. Because passive-aggressive roommates will, uh, because that's really peace-faking is at the heart of that. Um, maybe you've received a note like uh, this on the dishwasher where it says, Sigh, I remember the good old days of being clean, signed the dishes. Right? 
Or, uh, or you can go next level with your peace faking and passive aggression. Like, here, take a look at this. This is, this is super funny. There was this guy that created an art museum out of dirty things that his roommate left around the apartment, right? So, so this note says this. He says, uh, sour cream covered spoon left in sink before leaving town for four days, $3,400, right? That is next level peace faking, right? That's amazing. So uh, I was talking to my dad, and uh, he reminded me of this story that happened about a year ago. Um, so my parents were, they were out, like, where, where they were living, or where they're living now. Um, they had just moved in, and they were doing some work um, on the house uh, where they were living, and doing some work, like, on the exterior and trying to, like, fix some things up. And uh, through that, they ended up, like, cutting material and, like, cutting stone. So after a day or so of these contractors coming in and cutting stone um, there at their house, uh, my parents received a note on their door from their neighbor. And the note basically said, it was like, hey, um, you're getting a lot of dust in my house that's coming in through the vents. Um, uh, please, please don't do that or please stop, right? So my dad, he sees the snow, but my dad is super healthy. So what does he do? He's a peacemaker. He's not going to be passive. So he goes over, knocks on the door of the neighbor, and starts like trying to get more information and try to seek understanding and apologize for any dust that had, uh, had gotten into his home. So the neighbor responds by saying, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, we're fine. It's good. I mean, there's a lot of dust on my car, too. Right? <laughs> so what does my dad do? My dad's like, cool, I'm going to wash your car because I want there to be peace between us. So my dad goes and washes the neighbor's car. Like, that's, that's such an amazing story of peacemakers are active. Peacemakers are not passive. Peacemakers are not pa- uh, peace fakers. Peacemakers are active. And here's truth number two. Peacemakers offer forgiveness. Peacemakers offer forgiveness. Peacemakers we, we forgive those who have harmed us. And can we just admit, this is incredibly difficult to do. Incredibly difficult to do. All right, so let me, let me read, ask you some questions, and maybe um, together we can help process perhaps some, some forgiveness things that we need to process together. So, I'm gonna, so we'll ask, who, who has hurt us? Uh, what kind of relationship did we have with our parents? What, what is our most painful memory as a child or as an adult? Are we generally suspicious of others? And and why? Why are we generally suspicious of others? Are we angry with God? What is the most damaging thing that was said to us by a loved one? When have we felt betrayed? This is so hard. And maybe one of the hardest things that we will ever do as a Christ follower. So, So right now, as we're sitting here, can we think through, has there been anybody who has harmed us? Is there anybody who God might be speaking to us that that we need to forgive? Or is there somebody that that we have a hostile relationship with, right? Do we have a relationship in our life that's not peaceful? Because as as we forgive people, like, we're going to forgive believers, right? Because as Christ followers, we don't get it right all the time. And sometimes we screw up. And and as Christ followers, as somebody has messed up against us, we want to forgive them. Do we not? And how much more powerful is it than how, how much more powerful is this when we forgive people who don't know Jesus, who may not even be asking for forgiveness? How powerful is it for us to forgive them? Like how powerful would it be to show people 
that we are a follower of Jesus to forgive someone as Jesus would forgive them. So a, a few years ago, and a lot of us remember this, but a, a few years ago on June 17th, 2015, in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, there was a Bible study that was being held at um, Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. And in the middle of their Bible study, there was um, a 21-year-old man who came in. He came into the Bible study, and he sat there for an hour in the middle of their Bible study. And then he takes out a gun. He starts shooting people. And he kills nine people. This guy, he, he was fueled by hate. He was fueled by racism. He was fueled by white supremacy. So he, he was arrested by the authorities, and at his bond hearing, the families were given an opportunity to speak to him. And do you know what they said? It's here on the screen. It's in a USA Today article. It said this. When Christians are in the news, it's usually because they have done something wrong. They've gotten on the wrong side of a culture war or cheated on their wife or worse. What the world rarely gets to see is the powerful grace that flows from a deep faith predicated on the belief that we are all sinners in need of forgiveness. The family members of those slain at Charleston's Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church bore witness to the central tenet of Christianity last week as the nation gasped in awe. I forgive you, one after another, told the stone-faced and unrepentant alleged killer, Dylan Roof, at his bond hearing. Tweeting about the incredible scene, National Review writer Charles C.W. Cook noted, I am a non-Christian, and I must say, this is a remarkable advertisement for Christianity. Thankfully, the circumstances requiring forgiveness don't always involve the murder of a loved one, but sometimes they do. So after the incident, uh, people like, started debating gun laws and other, like, some of the religious leaders were claiming that they needed to kill this guy. Um, but here's how the Christians responded. They said, like, you took somebody from me. Like, I, I will never hold them again, but I forgive you. You see, in the world watched in awe at Christians forgiving someone like that because when Christ followers display the love of Christ, it's powerful because God forgives us when we don't deserve it and we forgive others whenever they don't deserve it. So truth number two, peacemakers offer forgiveness. All right, let's jump into truth number three. Truth number three, peacemakers make amends. Peacemakers make amends, right? So forgiveness is whenever um, someone has caused harm to you, um, making amends is whenever you have caused harm to someone else, right? When we have harmed others. It's not that people have harmed us, it's that we have harmed others. So, and this is not peacemaking, this is peace breaking, right? Whenever we cause harm to others, we are peace breakers, right? We are peace breakers. So we are almost like, uh, like expert construction people. We have blueprints, we have hard hats, we're like asking Jim to bring in more concrete so we can build up this wall of hostility. So here, here are a few questions to help us process um, some things of how we may have caused harm to others. The questions are, um, who, who have we hurt? H have we stolen anything? Where have we lied? Like, looking back at our life, like, what memories do we still feel really guilty about? Where have we openly criticized the others or through gossip? Um, where have we responded with anger? Where have we been unkind or cruel? 
Um, is it possible that we, we've judged people who may be less fortunate or, or more fortunate than us? Man, along with forgiveness, this is super, super difficult to admit when we've done wrongdoing. Right? So, and let, I'm going to help us out with something really practical. Uh, whenever we, we make amends, that's like, that's asking for forgiveness, right? Or, or saying we're sorry or apologizing. But uh, a couple things here. One is, it's really, really powerful, instead of just saying I'm sorry, to actually saying the words, will you forgive me? There's a lot more weight behind that, and it leads to a lot more reconciled relationships. Whenever we actually ask people, hey, I'm so sorry, will you forgive me? Right? And here's the second thing around, on this point, too. Um, we can either apologize or we can justify, but we can't do both. So what do I mean by that? I mean that sometimes we'll come in and we'll start apologizing, and then we start justifying our actions again, right, in the, in the midst of our apology. See, and what the person hears is they don't hear the apology anymore. They don't hear asking for forgiveness. Um, they just hear, like, oh, they're just making excuses for, for what they did. Right? So, so I, my recommendation was as we think through relationships where we need amending, or where we need to go and make amends, is that we either uh, ask for forgiveness or we justify our actions, but we, we don't do both. It's either one or the other. We can't, we can't do both. So peacemakers make amends. And here's, um, here's truth number four. Peacemakers seek reconciliation. Peacemakers seek reconciliation. So what do I mean by that? I mean that we want to reconcile people to God, right? Jesus came down, broke down the walls of hostility so we could come in and reconcile people to God, right? So in love, we're going to run towards people with like a, with a jackhammer or like a diamond cutter and like break down the walls of hostility that they have because we love them. Like some of us here, we, we don't think that God loves us or we think that God, God is really upset with us or we think that we did something wrong, that God maybe used to love us, but now he doesn't love us anymore. Like we've done too much wrong and we just have this really um, like uh, view of God where we just do not view him as a loving father. But here is how loving God the Father is, is God sent his son Jesus down to take the punishment that we deserve. That's how much God loves us, right? And Jesus comes in as the ultimate peacemaker so that we can help other people have a reconciled relationship with God the Father. And along with a reconciled relationship with God the Father, we also have a reconciled relationship with each other. So here's what that means. That means that whenever we have a reconciled relationship with each other, um, it takes both forgiveness and amends, right? It takes the person who has harmed to ask for forgiveness, and it takes the person who has been harmed to uh, forgive, right? So I want you to think about it like um, if there's harm done, think about it like there's now a street or a wall in between people, right? And uh, what happens is um, if you've harmed someone, you need to ask for forgiveness. So you're going to come up to the wall. And if somebody has been harmed, they're going to come up to the wall as well and ask forgiveness. And then as you reconcile that wall comes down, right? So reconciliation is the ultimate goal, although, as we know through experience, um, it, it doesn't always happen. So, so what do we do whenever we know that somebody is not going to ask for forgiveness? Uh, do we still forgive them anyway? What would Jesus do if he was us? He would forgive them. Or 
what happens if we have harmed somebody and we know that they are, um, you know, not, not going to, never going to forgive us? Do we still ask forgiveness? We still do, because that's what Jesus would do if he, if he was us, right? So the ultimate goal is peacemaking. Peacemakers seek reconciliation. Peacemakers seek reconciliation. So one more addendum um, as, we're, as we're wrapping up here. Uh, peacemaking is the ultimate sign of health. If you are a peacemaker, that means that you are overall healthy as a person, right? A lot of the way that we, we think through people and the way that we love people is we want to think through, hey, are, are they unhealthy? And let's help them become healthy. And we think that the way to become healthy is as we help encourage and inspire people to be pacemakers, right? Peacemakers are wall breakers. So you can see where somebody is from a health perspective in their heart as they're like tearing down walls of hostility, right? So they're, they're tearing down walls of hostility in their own life with God, right? We're tearing down walls of hostility with others, right? So we're not okay living in hostile relationships. We are active and moving towards healthy relationships, right? So peacemakers are active, Peacemakers um, offer forgiveness, peacemakers make amends, and peacemakers seek reconciliation because reconciliation is always the goal, and we want to be healthy just like Jesus. So and I think Jesus himself said it this way, um, and probably the best way, Matthew 5, 9. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So as a peacemaker, you're following Jesus. As a peacemaker, you're reconciling people to God. As a peacemaker, you're reconciling your own relationships. As a peacemaker, you know, you're breaking down walls. As a peacemaker, you're invading people's life because you love them and want to make peace in their life. So there was a, a conversation I had um, with a buddy uh, a few weeks ago, and um, and he, he was very, very distraught because he thought that um, at the end of the conversation that we weren't going to be friends anymore because of some, some things that had happened. Um, so he comes in and just really, like he did, I mean, I really uh, commend him um, just for coming in and wanting to make peace and trying to seek understanding. Um, so what happens? I have the, the peace of Jesus in me. He has the peace of Jesus in him. We're able to talk through things and have a reconciled relationship. And now, like, we're even better friends than we were before, right? That, that's what happens when two peacemakers come together, is we're able to have healthy, reconciled relationships, right? So what would relationships look like if you were a peacemaker? How, how would being a peacemaker radically change your life? Like, imagine, imagine your life with peaceful relationships, Right? And you may be sitting there and you may be asking, like, Isaac, but you don't know my parents. You don't know my roommate. You don't know my boss. You don't know my siblings. Right? You don't know these relationships that I have in my life. And all, yes, that's true. I don't know those specific relationships. But I know who your God is. And I know that your God is a God of peacemaking. And God has put peacemaking in you so that you can go be a peacemaker in the relationships that you have. So let's pray.